Marshall Sager here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Today, Sagar and I are joined by Jeremy W. Peters. He covers American politics at the New York Times. He has written a new book, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. That second part of the title is one of the most defining questions of a realignment era in American politics. It's actually the question we first got interested in when we first started covering the realignment back in 2019. So this is the perfect episode to learn a bit more about domestic politics. I know with all the Ukraine news, everyone's going to be looking to learn more. So if you missed my episode with Dimitri Kafinas last week, go check that out. Unfortunately, that episode has not aged poorly because of its relevancy. And in the future, we're going to be looking to do lots of foreign policy topics. Quick things before we get into the episode. Number one, this is a book episode, so check out our bookshop. Support us, support the seller, and help us get 10% of the commission there. Two, Substack goes out on Thursdays. Go subscribe there. And three, last but not least, would love any tips people send to help us keep the lights on. Of course, thank you, Lincoln Network. See you next time. Jeremy Peters, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you, Jeremy. Yeah. Jeremy, Sagar and I were very pumped to talk with you about insurgency, looking at the future, the past of the Republican Party. It's actually the topic this podcast started on. It's a topic which has swayed a bunch of different ways over the few, over the past few years. So we're excited to learn that your book is really looking at this, not just in terms of who's up, who's down this week, but this longer 30, 40 year story. Let's just start here. I love the subtitle of the book because it sums up where Sagar and I are, how Republicans lost their party and got everything they ever wanted. Explain what that phrase means in the context of this topic. So I think it's looking at the two halves of the party, although they're not really halves anymore. It's kind of more like uh, uh, five eighths of a pie and then this tiny little sliver off to the side. But it, 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 it's, it was an attempt to say this is what happened when Republican establishment types, and by that I mean like the, the Mitch McConnells, the Mitt Romneys, the John McCains, were displaced as the, the center of, of political power in the party. Um, and the second half is meant to explain how they got everything they ever wanted, why so many of those Republicans were largely fine with the arrangement, with the displacement, because while they had a leader in Donald Trump that many of them privately loathed, they loved the policies and can make peace with the ugliest aspects of, of Trump's rule, starting with January 6th, starting and ending, I guess, really with January 6th. And that's really a debate that we're having today. And I think, although I didn't intend it, the title insurgency is apt in more ways than one, because it not only describes the struggle between the leaders of, of the party who, you know, who lost out, as, as, as I say, um, but it also describes kind of the culmination of the worst parts of Trumpism on that day. 
It's interesting to me, Jeremy, uh, in thinking about what you just spoke with, which is something I've tried to articulate here on this show, which is that Trump, 2016, you could say there is an ideological agenda from a policy perspective. Very quickly, it becomes clear through the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that's not the case whatsoever. He doesn't actually care. I mean, I've interviewed the man. He truly does not care. I can say that. <laughs> he does not. Uh, and, uh, no. I, I mean, many people don't want to hear it. I'm just going to tell you the truth. No, it's but- true. And, and the people who work for him mostly, who are honest, who know him the best, will say that too. Yeah. And you know what? Richard Nixon wasn't ideological either. Um, it, it's just a, it, it's not necessarily a knock on the guy. Sorry, one hundred percent. No, no, of course. And I'm glad you said that because it, ideological, uh, uh, the lack of ideological blinders. I would say it was actually a major benefit to him in 2020 and also in the 2016. I'm speaking purely politically, but can you talk about the bargain of that within the establishment, Republicans? Because the Lindsey Graham famous tweet of 2016 is, if Trump will be our nominee and then we will be destroyed, and obviously Trump goes ahead and wins, everybody says this is all a fluke, Hillary was the worst candidate, then Trump wins 10 million more votes. I mean, there's no getting around that. The most successful and most popular Republican in decades. So- how did they come to uh, how did they come to have that bargain of we get the policy, but he gets to do whatever he wants? Talk talk to us about that part of the story. Well, the the doing whatever he wants is is partially accidental, and I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in the book because I think there's a scene in it that really captures how that bargain it came together and it's it's with <laughs> stormy daniels uh, around the time of, of stormy daniels and the retirement of anthony kennedy and i was interviewing a well-known uh, veteran conservative activist uh, and the Stormy Daniels thing had just dropped. The March for Life, which, you know, as you know, is a big event in Washington, drawing pro-life activists all from all over the country, uh, was, was happening. And it was, to me, I wanted to hear the people in that world defend Trump. Would they, would they still defend him? I guess was the question I, I, I went in with. And yeah, they did. Uh, there was some reservation. But one of these activists that I spoke to said, look, you know, this stuff isn't, it's not easy for us to swallow, but A, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it because I have that list of judges and I know that he's not going to appoint a sister. But B, let's say something hypothetically like an Anthony Kennedy retirement happens on the Supreme Court. Uh, It's going to become pretty quickly stormy who? And that's exactly what happened. happened. And in that moment with Kavanaugh, it wasn't just the uh, the the religious right that became bonded to Trump, cemented to him. It was the establishment Republicans, too, because Kavanaugh was an establishment guy that a lot of regular, um, you know, suburban Republicans saw themselves in. And when 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 he was attacked, uh, the perception was like they could do that to me. Um, and, and Carl Rove told me when I was reporting the book that the, the Kavanaugh time was the yeah, and Ronna McDaniel told me this, too. The Kavanaugh period, the, the confirmation was the easiest time that they had raising money because a lot of the establishment Republicans had fled and said, we're not we're done with this guy. They didn't repeal Obamacare. Uh, he's a he's he, he's a pig. He's constantly embarrassing us on Twitter. We're done. But Kavanaugh fixed all that. 
And here's something I'm curious about. So you've been covering the American political system about as long as Sagar and I have been interested in politics. Throughout that period, there's just God, been, you made me feel so old. Thanks. I was trying to <laughs> phrase it delicately, but you know, I, I, I didn't. I This is up to the math on the uh, part of the audience. Quick little test there. But, you know, during this period, basically, let's say since, you know, 2006, Katrina aftermath, Republicans lose, the midterms devastatingly, there is obituary after obituary after obituary about the Republican Party. And every single time, it's a tidy narrative. It makes sense. Wow, this Iraq war, Bush mismanagement, 2008 financial crisis, then you have Obama's now elected, then you have all the demographic changes in the country. Why does the Republican Party just refuse to die in a way that the Republican Party of the 1930s effectively did? Because oftentimes people keep saying this is just like Herbert Hoover. Obama's the new FDR. Biden's the new FDR. But it doesn't happen. What's what's the broad story here? That's a really interesting question. I mean, that's almost something for like that's a whole topic for a political science class. But I'll take a stab at it because I think that like the short answer is the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have essentially flipped constituencies, right? You have, uh, and and the Republican Party has added new voters in, those 10 million voters that that we were talking about earlier who didn't vote for Trump in 2016, but did in 2020. I mean, it's that that that's the makings of a another political party, one that's completely different from the Republican Party of Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan. Um, I actually think this Republican Party is more it's closer to the to kind of a Richard Nixon, Pat Buchanan type Republican yes. Party than it is to uh, a Reagan Bush Republican Party. But that's a it's a great question. But I do think that what's happened is those 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 suburban voters who, you know, the, the call them whatever, the country club Republicans, chamber of commerce Republicans in the suburbs, uh, the kind, the kinds of people who willingly, happily voted for Mitt Romney, uh, many of them bolted in 2020 for the Democratic Party, or, or at least for Biden. Right. Um, and yeah, and, and that I think is a short answer about why it's, it, it's not dead yet. You know, what that party looks like in 2024. I don't know because I don't know um, what Biden's standing is going to be and how much he's going to repel some of those people he won over reluctantly in, in 2020. And I don't know who Trump is going to be repelling either because he certainly uh, doesn't seem to be doing himself many favors with moderate uh, uh, swing type voters by, you know, harping on about uh, this, this, this stolen, this election that was stolen. Right. From yeah. And, and, let's, and sorry, sorry just quick, quick follow up. Cause then I want to get your take on this because I was yeah. raising the question because my take is that the Republican look, there's the cynical Mitch McConnell version of this, right? Like you could win by being opposition, but I also think there's a more philosophical version of opposition, which is the reason why Republicans keep surviving is that essentially since Obama, they've been the repudiation of whatever the status quo has been. So if you didn't like 
Obamacare, if you didn't like how the 2008 financial crisis was responded to, if you don't like COVID, if you don't like what your child's curriculum looks like, the Republican Party is just very good at perpetually just reinserting itself. And once again, there's no direct tie between the four things I just listed. So that's why mm. the whole Trump, no ideology, no philosophical bit isn't particularly useful there. But I mean, Sagar, what do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 difficult because this is where I was. That's why I was going to ask you, Jeremy. I was going to be mm-hmm. like, okay, let's chart the rise of this of this oppositional type politics. Because mm-hmm. as you write in the book, to me, the first person to it's always been that way. But the first person to say it, the quiet part out loud, was just Sarah Palin. I was. It's mm-hmm. just like screw Obama. The, yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. And the tip of the spear. Enough, yeah. Right. right. Like, yeah. And the, the Trump's pollster, Tony that. Fabricio, told me that. Yeah. Yeah. She's the tip of the spear. It's his, it's his quote. I thought it was so great that I named the, the chapter about her, um, the tip of the spear. And you're right, it, it's, Sagar. It's it's the saying the quiet part out loud. Um, and you see that. In in many of her phrases and her 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 enemies that that she made that she antagonized uh, for political purposes um, that, that Trump would adopt right so oh, yeah. you have her saying things like to reporters and I believe she said this on the final day of her governorship in in Alaska when she was resigning she said to reporters quit making things up you know and it's like it's one thing Republicans have attacked. Uh, journalists, uh, mainstream reporters forever, but to accuse them of actually fabricating their stories was another level. And it was a, it was a, a precursor to fake news. Um, you know, I think she also had a, a, I mean, and this is not so much saying the quiet part out loud as it is like, it just, just outright misinformation, but remember she originated as best we can tell at least certainly is responsible for making it a popular part of the, of the political lexicon the phrase death panels right oh yeah i mean that was I her that. Yeah. she and, and i have a story in the book that I, I think people will be very interested in that, that has not been told before but how exactly that ended up on her facebook page um it was all her like i mean she she came up with a lot of the stuff herself um not everything which i also kind of get into but um yes it was it was sarah palin and she was not only good at channeling that the the, the sense of cultural dislocation and displacement um, that that these people felt uh, the, the people she spoke to felt. She also was one of them in the sense that they saw the way the Republican Party and the John McCain campaign treated and the media, frankly, treated her, and recognized a kind of elite disdain that they felt in their own lives. It kind of, you know, this condescension being looked down on by people who they felt thought they were better than them. And that's the story of Sarah Palin's political genesis. Mm -hmm. It's this, this woman that was disparaging her, her and her people in Alaska, in the, in the Matsu Valley were disparagingly referred to uh, as Valley trash. And she takes that and, and wears it as a badge of honor just as many Trump supporters would when Hillary Clinton called them deplorables. So there's a real through line there uh, that I, I just I found I, f- I found Sarah Palin to be 
there's absolutely fascinating once you go back and you kind of excavate not just what happened to her when she was a national star, but how she developed her political identity as an outsider in Alaska and ran against the Republican Party. As an aside, I just happened to be assigned to cover her libel suit against the New York Times. Oh, right. She is is, ongoing right now. Suing my employer, um, Mm -hmm. which makes this, I mean, it's it's odd in many ways, but um, and, and, and coincidental. But she just said on the witness stand, uh, they, they asked her about her her background, and uh, she again with with pride in her voice said, "I ran mostly ran against Republicans." So this is the other funny thing I find about Palin is that she was ahead of her time, man. She resigned from governorship because she yeah. realized she's like, "Wait, this governance is getting in the way of me being famous and making money." Um, and to me, <laughs> to me, that, if anything, is the current state of a lot of these people. Uh, Marshall and I have uh, talked about this, but, yeah. you know, the famous quote from Madison Cawthorn when he's like, I don't have policy staff. I just have communication staff. I mean, look, <laughs> yeah, right. on the one hand, yeah. it's cynical, but on the other that's probably what you should do if you want to be mm-hmm. a rising you should, star. You should, hi- you should hire politician. good communication staff. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's you should be hire your much strategy. better the people than he has, but you, that, those are the people you should hire. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's not a surprise why she's the number one fundraiser in the party. Matt Gates. I mean, all the guy does is go on War Room. I don't know if it's War Room Pandemic anymore, but War Room uh, <laughs> with Bannon. These guys right, are right. stars, um, and that's all they want to be. So can you talk about the media angle of that and how Trump, like I said, just dialing everything up to 10, he just took this kind of proto thing where, you know, Palin at least had to be governor. He was like, no, you don't have to do any of that. You can just get and earn media through talking. And that actually is enough to win the American presidency. Right. Well, that's a great point to to segue into the answer, um, because Trump was a media phenomenon alone before and then a politician right, right? like he right. started as a as essentially a broadcaster he was a reality television star he was a developer before that but but as i kind of lay out in the in the book he always had his eye on hollywood he wanted to go to film school and so he was drawn to to the screen and wanted to be on it and that it turns out uh, in, in a media era when uh, like media is everything, uh, he, he, he ended up being the, the perfect candidate, the ideal candidate. Um, he knew how to use the media because he had operated inside it for so long. And he was friends with Roger Ailes, who interviewed him on uh, an old talk show that Ailes hosted on CNBC as far back as 1995. Right. Um, and Trump understood social media when social media became the way to drive television media. And he called himself the the Ernest Hemingway of 180 characters because he would sit there and somebody described this scene to me in the book. He would sit there and, and tweet and say, watch this, watch this. And he would have CNN on because he knew that CNN was most responsive to his tweets. And sure enough, the tweet would be up on the Chiron within seconds. And that's, you know, it's it he learned that from from practice or just from experience, right? Um, but there was also like a, like an intuition there because his pollster, Tony Fabricio, once said at a, a, a 
panel discussion a while back. He was debating, you know, Trump's Twitter habits and whether or not it was good for him. And he said, hold on, hold on. Let's just stop here a second. How just poll of the room. How many of you people uh, uh, know what percentage of Republican voters go to Twitter once a week? And the number was staggeringly low. It was like 17%. But of course, all the journalists in that room went to Twitter every single day. And Trump understood that. Like he didn't know the exact numbers. He hadn't read the poll, flipped through the, the brief, the briefing materials and, and, and studied the polls and the crosstabs. But he 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 knew it. You know, it's funny. I'm glad you're talking about Twitter because it comes, this comes to mind in a couple of different contexts. How important is skill is is the social media skill set given the political dynamics of the country because i saw someone tweet the following it basically said 10 years from now which is more important the ability to go viral on social media or the ability to deliver a big speech to an audience and you know that obviously brings to mind trump that brings to mind aoc mm-hmm. in terms of the viral people but Obama is giving the big speech in 2004 that makes a difference there, but you see people like Julian Castro give the big speech in 2012 and it basically doesn't lead them anywhere particularly. So how, how do you think, how do you th- as a right. political reporter right. think, right. oh, and, and then one final thing to add to this, the problem with the framing though is it undercuts the fact that you could get all sorts of virality and get elected, but that doesn't get the Green New Deal passed. So how do you just think of the competing instincts, dynamics, bits there that I'm raising? That's a really interesting point. And I think um, it probably has to do with the, with the fact that the media landscape just changed. I mean, when Obama gave that speech in 2004 in Boston, he uh, uh, there was no real social media. I mean, I guess there was kind of Facebook, um, but wasn't it mostly for college students back then? That, that was 2004, was, right? So Probably not. That was the MySpace social media right. team. Yeah. <laughs> Friendster. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, yeah, you, you could give a speech like that. And, and in, the, in an era, a media era dominated by broadcast news, um, sure, yeah, that, that worked. But Trump, um, in a way, like social media has, uh, has, has empowered and emboldened people like Trump who go for uh, quick little digs um, and, and jabs at people. And that still gets covered, and that's driving what gets covered on broadcast. So it's like the, the role of broadcast news and, and, and mainstream media more broadly in this Twitter era, in the Trump era, um, has been really to kind of follow what's on social media, which I think is kind of a depressing development. Um, but something ultimately that I, I think is correcting itself, because I think there's a real recognition that Twitter is an unhealthy and unrepresentative bubble for both sides of the political spectrum. Um, And frankly, like discouraged reporters, uh, journalists from talking to people Mm -hmm. like, you know, in, in, in my world, especially I've been pretty disheartened by like, if I have to read another story written, I won't won't name names, but like some media outlets that, that, produce entire stories based on what people are saying Aggregate on social media. Tweets. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. People click the hell out of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Because it's easy. It's, yeah. it's 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 a lazy way to report, and it's easy to uh, easy to make a uh, uh, take a shot at somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was going to follow up with a different question, but I want to follow up on what you just said. Why are you arguing that Twitter is bad for both parties? That's so we we get, and I'm sure the audience gets the idea that Twitter is bad for Democrats because. If the Dem- if the Democrats' problem is that it, the, Twitter's bad for Democrats because it elevates a specific segment of the party beyond how much actual popular mandate that set of the party has, right? Insert whether you like the policy or not, the defund the police debate, insert various culture war issues. I get that part. But why is that true on the Republican side? That's interesting. Um, I mean, I think um, social media – well, the answer is, is, is I think you don't really need to look much, uh, much further than Trump, right? Because I don't know when I would be interviewing voters, um, a lot, almost all of them would mention their misgivings about Trump's social media, and I think it kind of contributed to the sense that he was unhinged and and unsuited to be president, especially when during the middle of a pandemic and, and a nationwide reckoning on, on racial inequality, he's tweeting about Nancy Pelosi drinking booze on the job and making fun of, you know, Stacey Abrams appearance. Like it's just not very presidential. And I think people saw it that way. Um, but it's been interesting to see how he's off Twitter, um, what, what that has done. And I, I don't know, I haven't seen any scientific quantification of this, but my sense is that, his people still very much know what he's up to every day and what he's saying. Um, but it's been pushed out of the elite media's vision, the, its line of sight. And it's harder to, to, to track uh, for a lot, of, you know, a lot of journalists in the mainstream media what exactly, how exactly he's connecting with his voters. And he still is, obviously. That's what I, I want to tease this part out. So, you know, whenever you say, when they tell you like, yeah, I don't like them on Twitter. Don't you think they're just full of it? I, I honestly do. Cause I, I've spoken to many of these people as well. I think they love it. I think they love the stormy, their favorite parts yeah. is horse face. They live for yeah. it. They live I think a for lot of the, them do. Yeah. they live mm-hmm. for the, and I say this with no disparagement. I get it too. They live mm-hmm. for the uh, morning Joe freak out or Mika facelift or whatever. And her response, mm-hmm. they love it. I, I think that it gives them life. Because, and again, I say this with no disparagement, I think that a lot of these people feel stepped on in life. They feel like the elites, uh, you know, uh, put their nose down at them. And for him to piss off in the most personal and visceral way, the people who they hold most responsible for uh, their state in life, whether that's true or not, that is ultimately what they're voting for, uh, a lot of these people. What do you think? Quick thing. A, a sorry, lot of them. Sorry, 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 Jeremy. Kasagar, I'm yeah, sure, sure. going to put you in the interview chair for a second. Okay. <laughs> you, you, you said they, though. Yeah. And I think this is what's interesting, though. Jeremy, you set this up well by pointing out those 10 million Trump voters were people who didn't go for, go for him in 2016. So I don't think those people like social media Trump. That, that was my takeaway from what Jeremy just said. Like, I, I get I get you talking about the, you, it seems like you're describing a 2015 Trump voter who liked horse face, but I don't get the sense that a, a Biden Glenn Youngkin voter or the type of person who liked Trump before the coronavirus and then didn't like him after the 2020 thing. So I think that's just the thing I'd push you on. Politics or coalitions, I'm talking about the, uh, the core kind of Trump voter uh, Jeremy, but 
I'd love for you to parse that question as well. well. So I think this is, and this this kind of takes me to, it makes me think of the portion of, of my book that deals with the bargain that he cut with the religious right. Mm -hmm. And initially, I think a lot of those people were either horrified or they pretended to be horrified by what he would the crassness of it all, the meanness. When he called, says John McCain wasn't a war hero because he was captured. Remember, though, he gave those remarks in front of an evangelical audience in Iowa and people laughed. I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't oh, yeah. know that. Wow. I didn't know it was I evangelical. Know. I do remember people laughing. An evangelical audience and people left. So there is all you know. Th there's been an element of the religious right that I think did, many of the leaders of the religious right didn't want to cop to this, but they were drawn to that meanness. And Trump, by becoming getting elected president and behaving this way from the behind the resolute desk, gave them a permission slip to do it themselves or at least to laugh at it. And I think it became, to use a word that I hate, um, normalized uh, in, in, in their communities. Uh, not that they would all do it themselves or do it to one another, but as somebody described him to me, this is an evangelical Christian woman. He may be a bully, but he's our bully. Yeah. I, I, I think that gets to it. Uh, this is the part too where I want to explore, you know, more the latter part of the book. What is the takeaway for the Republican Party today? Um, and it's kind of funny. I've always found the takeaway to me is very clear. If the Stop the Steal had not taken over the brain worms of so many of these people, it's like, hey, uh, Trump basically didn't do anything and basically tried to lose and still almost won the election by like 40,000 votes, which is kind of insane. So <laughs> maybe we should be like, well, why are all these Latinos in South Texas coming out? Why are the Asian vote in Orange County? And in uh, my favorite is like even urban Boston, you know, like Dominican uh, neighborhoods coming too. out. Detroit, you're exactly right. You know, minority mm -hmm. neighborhoods in in deep urban sectors coming out hardcore for Trump. Maybe that's a question. So, yeah. can you talk about what exactly the takeaway uh, has been amongst the different segments of the right from the results of the 2020 election? Mm -hmm. um, I think you hit it right on the head there with the minority vote because you know I remember the, the narrative kind of going into 2020 was that the you know the, the African American vote which uh, turned out for Biden in places like South Carolina and and handed him the the Democratic nomination decisively um, was going to do that in the big cities in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania and that's uh, that's not what happened I mean it was a it, it, and, and it got it even got covered that way a little bit after the election that like that the, that it was the, the black vote that delivered Michigan to Biden for instance but but it wasn't because Biden got fewer votes in the city of Detroit in 2020 than Hillary got in 2016 and Trump and Pence got more. I mean, that that blew my By the mind. way, Jeremy, I don't know if you know this. This is a big stop the steal talking point about why it's impossible for why Biden could have won the state of Michigan. They always point to this one. I'm like, yeah, it's called a different coalition. Like, I don't know what to yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, continue, please. Yeah, well, so yeah. that to me, it's like there is 
If you talk to people like Marco Rubio about this, like what they'll tell you is there is a working class multi-ethnic center-right coalition and that Florida is kind of a, a template for that because Trump did very, very well with the Latino vote in Florida, better than most people thought that he would. Um, and, it, you know, it wasn't all like, oh, socialism is bad and, you know, Biden is Chavez and that, you know, um, a lot of it had to do with with the, the demonization of law enforcement um, and, and other things that I think that just didn't sit well with voters. But that is I, 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 a takeaway like, OK, if you can take if you can take Trump and and like I, I I mentioned Rubio because he explained this to me once in an interview that I did with him right after the election. It's like if there's like a mute button for the for the incessant blather and complaining that Trump does uh, and and the distractions that 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 he's always throwing out there. Like, is there a place for a Republican who is? a culture warrior still who identifies a lot of that, you know, the, the kind of um, anti-left um, uh, defund the police to, to points to hit, to hammer Democrats on, um, but who is also at the same time more of a, a kind of working class, um, has more working class appeal. And I think the problem there is, okay, how pro-working class can a Republican be? Are they going to be willing to say support an increase in the minimum wage? Uh, are they going to raise corporate taxes? Uh, and and so that's what I think they haven't quite figured out. If you listen to somebody like Josh Hawley these days, you know it's, it, there's it's a very kind of anti corporate. Uh, uh, it's, he, that's his agenda. It's very, very, it's, it's, well, not all, not exclusively anti-corporate, but it's, it's not, this is not Mitt Romney. Corporations are people, my friend. The depressing answer to your question is, and, and, and it's funny because if you listen to the first season of this show in 2019, we thought the whole, but how do you say you're working class unless you do minimum wage supports, unless you have a healthcare plan, unless you do this... That isn't necessary because Trump proved that you can deliver for the working class through the cultural lens. So you don't have so the so the issue for Trump was that because he could run against defund the police, because he could run using the narrative about cultural condescension, distrust in institutions. You're going to see Republicans in the midterms, and you are seeing them focus on COVID restrictions. This is very much mm -hmm. the, Glenn, the Glenn Youngkin thing. Glenn mm -hmm. Youngkin did not, is a moderate Republican on economics. Glenn Youngkin did not need to talk about raising the Virginia minimum wage because mm -hmm. it seems that the defining story of this political moment in the country right now is that this top-down versus bottom-down, centralized versus decentralized, culture mm -hmm. fight is where everything comes down to. So I, I think yeah, that's how Republicans are to square the circle. Well, yeah, the culture and and to your point, the culture wars have kind of become a part of the argument over the economy, right? Because the COVID shutdowns are directly impacting the yes. economy. And that that's, that's kind of new because you're not just talking about gay marriage and abortion and that doesn't have anything to do with the economy, right? So um, no, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's a good point. Well, what I just add like to this is oh, quick yeah, thing ahead. to add to this is let's put it this way: we've had Josh Hawley on the show twice. 
more Republican voters are going to be turned on by the fact that the mainstream media deeply does not like him. I think in many cases for deserved reasons, but you know, the, there are more people who like the fact that he is verboten in certain circles. He has the wrong. He has the right enemies, right? That than any te- big tech wonky remaking the republic. I mean, look, you're seeing this, and we, we should talk about. It. You're seeing this to fight JD Vance, right? JD Vance also had him on the show. JD is not performing particularly well in the polls in Ohio. He's giving speeches where he's saying we're going to raise taxes on upper middle class people who disagree with you, Republican working class voters. He has the wonky, but no one, no one cares. So th- mm. I think that's just that's just the the data point that I'm looking at. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, voters can also get kind of smell a phony too. Um, but I would say that with the that with Holly, uh, that takes us back to Sarah Palin, right? Because the point that I, I that we started on here about why she was the tip of the spear in the Republican, you know, in, of the MAGA movement. Um, as I say in my book, is she had the right enemies, right? The Republican elites hated her. The mainstream media hated her. And that's what Trump had even before he got involved in politics. To take you back to that uh, that scene with Roger Ailes in 1995, Roger says to Trump, I, you know, I've never quite figured out how is it that you, this rich guy from Manhattan, uh, married to all these beautiful women flying around in your jets and everything. How are you? How is it that the cab drivers and the, the hard hats are like, hey, Donald, we love you. We love you. And Trump says, you know, I think it's because the rich people don't like me. And he was right about that. And and I think like it took him to explain that to Roger Ailes, who, who probably got it. But but the, the fact that Roger asked him that and 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 then from that point on, kind of you know, saw Trump as this kind of blue collar working class hero. Um, it's just a, a reminder that this has really always been with us. And it took Trump to kind of make it a politically viable path that that once he got, of course, the Republican establishment uh, and the Bush wing of the party out of the way. Well, that's the crazy part to me. Um, and this is where I'm curious for your thoughts. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the debate around barstool conservatism, but you said something very key, yeah. which is that the culture war fights of today, abortion kind of, but even then not really, have no semblance to the 1990s. We're not talking about violence in video games. Abortion, yes. Gay marriage is obviously law of the land. The culture war changed dramatically in the year 2014. It became much more about political correctness. It became about, uh, you know, debates around race, you know, the proliferation then also of critical race theory. Then it also became just simply about the way that you speak, which doesn't quite come down to political correctness, but is encompassed by that. Hmm. And that is typified to me by the barstool phenomenon of that. And this is all Matthew Walther. I didn't come up with this, that there are tens of millions of voters who care a lot about political correctness and who either don't care or are either even pro-choice themselves. Um, or there are a lot of people out there who are pro-gay marriage, um, but also who despise, you know, the defund the police movement or even, you know, some of the worst excesses of modern leftism. And then you combine that even more so with pandemic restriction 
and an obviously unified message from the media and from the scientific community about one way of the virus and then, you know, haphazard and alternative ways being offered here and the lack of debate. And you see it again activated under the umbrella of political correctness. It's how the whole free speech, you know, debate has uh, has morphed and is being accused of being a right wing issue. But that's because those are the generally the places where it seems targeted the most. So to me, like, it's really anti-political correctness is the modern heart of the GOP. And so whenever I hear people say, how does, how can Ted Cruz, you know, be for anti-union, non-minimum wage, vote for a corporate subsidy, all of this, and still call himself the blue-collar, blue-jeans party, it's like, well, there are a lot of blue-collar, blue-jeans people who really hate the liberal elite. I mean, like, it's yeah. it's simple. Mm-hmm. And not only hate, are willing to vote only on that. I mean, mm-hmm. that that seems to be the beating heart of the GOP. But I'm not sure so many people have realized it yet. I'm so I'm curious from your perspective about how even in the party themselves, whether they understand that. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, you know, the question is, like, can that formula work in a, in, in a blue state? And it's entirely candidate dependent because right. Glenn Youngkin, I think people tried to use that as, as a, an example of how you can run as a Trump as, as, a, as a Republican in Donald Trump's party without fully embracing Trump. But he, you know, he's such a, he's, he's so unique. I don't know he's that. He's so anomalous in my opinion. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Really, I'm curious for your takeaway from Youngkin. I, I, I think the same thing. I think that it, you're, you're not going to find Glenn Youngkin's um, popping up all over the place in, in, in purple and blue States. The, uh, the, yeah. And I, can that kind of person, get through a Republican primary. Right. And I think that's a challenge for Republicans going forward is if you, you know, unless you have a, a Glenn Youngkin who was able to do that um, in the circumstances. Ranked choice Virginia, voting. Ranked choice yeah, voting. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's, all, you know, all these variables that don't exist in every state. And it's, you know, um, look at look at what's happening in 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 the primary for Senate in Georgia. Right. Like you could have a Glenn Youngkin type candidate who's running there. I don't really know of one, but the guy who's leading in the polls, at least last century, is, is Herschel Walker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It's this is this is Donald Trump's legacy, right? Like he's he's left the party kind of in the in the same position as when it started. People are still <laughs> fighting over how much he matters. And the thing that's funny here. Depending on your perspective, whether it's whether whether it's funny or not, is it seems that at a candidate level, a lot of folks, and this relates back to the JD Vance, Josh Mandel reference, seem to be taking all these lessons from Trump when it's not quite clear to me whether those lessons basically apply to anyone else. Because sorry, we've talked about this before. We could say, well, Trump showed you, as Sarah Palin did, that you can turn against the media. Well, Ted Cruz got number two in the primary in 2015. And as people pointed out, media distaste and Ted Cruz style bad boyism, if that could even be a thing, played a huge role in that. So so what are the actual Lessons from Trump because we see, and I'm sure you see these people every every few every election cycle. There's some tryhard dude who's like, "I'm the MAGA America First candidate," and they're tweeting and they've got a thousand followers. And it's actually very cringe, and basically no one cares. What's the actual lesson? Do you think? I think it works until it doesn't, right? Because it worked for Brian Kemp, and in my book, I talk about Brian Kemp's strategist 
who was one to identify for me and, and articulate, I think, the, the, the best explanation I've heard for what Trumpism uh, is in, in the Republican Party, the three-legged stool that used to be, you know, economic, social, fiscal, I'm sorry, economic, uh, uh, military, fiscal, I'm sorry, <laughs> economic, social, military, um, it now has a fourth leg, which is entirely stylistic. And that's this Trump in your face, no apologies, aggression. Um, that uh, that same strategist who, who told me about how he was, you know, devising, uh, uh, that's how he was thinking about it when he approached campaigns, was the one who made the ad for Brian Kemp when he was running in the Republican primary in 2018, with Brian Kemp saying he was going to drive his pickup truck around Georgia and round up illegals. And it worked. That ad arguably won Brian Kemp the primary. Um, but once <laughs> Brian Kemp became a rhino because he dared to say that, that that Trump had lost the state of Georgia, it all kind of fell apart. So yeah, I still I still do think that that attitude is is a prerequisite, um, not for everyone, but it only works if Trump likes you, right? Or if he doesn't attack you. That's a good um, way of summing it up. Yeah. If he doesn't yeah. attack you, that's the key. And that's why Ted Cruz, I think, has been so smart about this, because he withered once Trump started attacking him, attacking his wife. And this is where Trump is more effective, right? He's not, a, not in his endorsements, is in who he goes after. And Cruz, you know, whatever people say about Ted Cruz, having seen him speak, uh, you know, lately, I will say that he understands and captures more of that culture war uh, aggression and does it well than somebody like, say, Christy Nome, oh, um or yeah, he, of know, all of them. It's funny because he came in second, I think, for a reason. He's actually a pretty good politician. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people he knows those he knows those audiences. He knows what to say to them. Exactly. And a quick thing on this, Sagar. Yeah. Think back to the Sarah Palin example we started with. Sarah Palin viscerally felt mainstream media disdain. Um, I look, I like, I remember um, the articles, you know, and I'm, I'm not normally this person, but she went to five colleges, and there, there, were these like little, there were these like <laughs> microaggressions. Um, I think she actually viscerally felt that. And Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz has been Ivy League. Ted Cruz was hated by Ivy League people. What we're basically getting to is that. The people who could succeed at this are people who are authentically able to channel. So, and that's, so this, and this, this is to the point of why, because I really hate when people go like, it's Trump is so hypocritical because he's super rich and he claims he's the working class thing. Like, everyone knows that. And that's for the Roger Ailes yeah. example. That's why they, they like him. Yeah. They know. He's, he's everyone a, he's knows. He's a traitor everyone, to his class. Yeah. Everyone knows that Ted Cruz's wife worked at Goldman Sachs. Everyone knows he's a rich guy. He went to Princeton. He was Bible reciter, nerd, constitution guy. No one, no one, like, there's no veil here. Everyone knows. But what they do know is that the disdain, deserved or not, is authentic. And it seems like if we're listing the politicians who haven't been able to translate, it just doesn't seem real. It's, see, Josh, Josh Mandel. Yeah. Josh Mandel, that's exact. Josh Mandel, people could tell it's fake. I, I think that's like the big thing. Yeah, and they can tell it's fake with JD Vance too, right? Um, um, it's, it's it's the flip well side of that is the you know what Newt Gingrich once said about Trump's appeal, and you know of all the characters, 
um, it, it, to kind of explain, as I try to do in this book, you know, the, the antecedents to Trumpism, like Newt Gingrich is, is a really interesting one because he understood, or it's interesting for a couple of reasons, going back, you know, in 1994 with the Republican Revolution, you know, he said about Trump um, having understood the experience well of what it meant to be a Republican insurgent, that Trump's appeal is not that he's a conservative, it's that he's anti-left. Yeah. And I think for most people, most of his supporters, that's absolutely true. And it's become even truer as, as, as the Democratic Party has embraced policies that is that are very easy to caricature. And uh, going back to Gingrich uh, and, and, and the, being an antecedent in another way, he in, in 2012, when he ran against Obama, and, or I'm sorry, ran against Romney in the primary, and I get into this in the book, he did well because he performed well on stage. Yep. And this is where Trump knocked it out of the park is in the debates. It wasn't it's like it wasn't fully baked enough yet in 2012. This this media, the you know, meta media, it, it, media is everything. Um that, that, you know, Gingrich struggled and was just pummeled by Romney's uh, attacks. Uh, but people love Newt Gingrich because he fought and he ripped the faces off of the other guys. And they looked at him and they said, I want to see him do that. One woman told me I interviewed her in South Carolina at the time I was covering this. And she said, I want to see him debate Obama. And that was her, that was her primary reason for liking Newt Gingrich. <laughs> okay. I, do you remember 2012? This was a huge antecedent to Trump in retrospect. Uh, it was like John King opens the debate, asks mm -hmm. Gingrich about his affair or something like that. And he's like, you are the most despicable. I forget yes. what that is. He just brutalizes right. John King. But do you yes, remember absolutely. the audience reaction? The they roar? went nuts. That was a Trump moment. You know, in retrospect, mm -hmm. I've had to go through and be like, what were all... The little things and I, like to me i have another one of those in the book it yeah. wasn't that it wasn't that one although that's a great one mm -hmm. um it was actually with juan williams uh, in the fox news debate when juan williams asks it's it's, it's interesting it's just like it to go back and see how like what how gingrich used those debates to uh, to, to win to, to to bolster his credentials as a street brawler and that was not only what you know of course it's what donald trump ended up doing but that was the model that roger ailes built for the kind of stars who succeeded on his network and the kinds of politicians he wanted to see running the republican party there's a great scene in, in my book where roger ailes is, is this and this is relayed to me by Stuart stevens romney's former guy roger ailes is preparing george hw bush for for debate against bill clinton and uh he's well i'll i want to give people some reason to buy the book but it's yeah absolutely They'll buy it don't worry yeah <laughs> uh my okay so my last question here jeremy does trump you you interviewed trump for the book do you think he's gonna run again i know it's loaded What's your analysis? Oh, I'm no, I'm glad you asked because I, I so I had the same answer that I had, and I spoke to him uh, a number of times. The first being about six weeks after January 6th, so about a year ago. Um, my answer is the same as it was then, which is if the election were tomorrow, absolutely. Um, but the election's not tomorrow, and I just don't know. Great, great. He's he's a very whimsical guy, and he, in 2015 he almost called it off before he decided to, to pull the trigger. So a number of things could could intervene at this moment, yes, because he and I saw this over the course of speaking to him a number of times. I saw him becoming angrier and angrier and more and more detached from reality reality about what happened in 2020, um, and he went from 
basically saying not overly disparaging things about most Republicans in the first interview to the final interview, taking credit for everybody's victory who ran as an, with an R after their name, you know, from, from Ron DeSantis. To <laughs> That's Susan his favorite Collins. thing. He's like, he was a nobody without me. Nobody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for my last question here, once again, we we're talking before the show started. I appreciate this book because this isn't just a typical Trump era he said, she said, drama this, who's up, who's down. There's actually a deeply Thank you. serious idea here. And the idea to me basically is this. We're in a moment, and this is what we cover on the show, where the Pluto system is really untethered. No one quite has a blueprint. A lot of people feel like it's a lost decade, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But within this 30, 40 year history, there are these pseudo, there are these proto people. Um, Sarah Palin, she can't quite translated. Newt Gingrich, like we said, he did well on the debate stage, but he couldn't quite stick the landing. Trump, proto, on and on and on and on. You could go back into the 1990s with uh, Ross Perot, all sorts of people like that. And then, you know, on the the Democratic side, I think there are people like Bernie Sanders, proto-candidate, Andrew Yang, proto-candidate of the disaffected young people thing. What would you how would you just sum up? I'm going to try to force a theory on you. How would you just sum up this idea that if you just look across this history, we're going to see numerous examples of people who are getting at what the successful formula is, but either can't mm-hmm. translate it into a bigger program like Reagan could, like LBJ could, like FDR could, or like Trump can't expand it beyond themselves. This also applies to Obama too. Sagar and I think Mm -hmm. we both think Obama cleans Trump's clock in 2016. That meant nothing for Hillary Clinton. So just what's your response? Because this is my this Mm -hmm. is my takeaway from your book. Yeah. What's your what's your response? Yeah. I see exactly what you're getting at. And it it may not be the most satisfying of answers, um, but uh, I'm going to quote Pat Buchanan um, here, who told me that he thinks Trump, because I asked him a version of the same question, why, why, why could he do this and you couldn't? And he said, I think Trump is the indispensable man. Mm-hmm. And so for the future, that doesn't necessarily bode well for Ron DeSantis trying to, to run this playbook. Um, it, it may very well could be that this is just not a formula that, that you, can, you can run again. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. Uh, Jeremy, I really enjoy talking to you, man. Uh, Likewise. People are going to buy the book. Um, as we continue to say, link is down ordering there. People. We are ordering yeah, you, order to, buy you to buy book. this book. <laughs> I, I love it. I love Top it. down, yeah. yeah. The link is down in the description. We really enjoy talking to you. Thank you for uh, swinging by. Appreciate it. No, thanks for the great conversation. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.